Well, Paul, thank you for making me uncomfortable. Um, if, if you're new or you're visiting Common Ground, it's kind of normal for us to make you uncomfortable. Um, but there's actually a reason for that because we really aren't interested in religiosity or church. We're interested in meeting with God. And a lot of times it takes breaking a mold a little bit, trying something weird like this. Um, Sometimes that's weird, but it's good for us to stretch a little bit to see what God might want to do in our lives. That's why when we do communion, we're not doing it this week, uh, but when we do communion, we get up and we walk up and take it. For some people, that's really weird. Um, or we have responses a lot where you do something, trying to get us a little bit uncomfortable, because in those moments, God can really start to work on us. Well, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and I wanted to start with a question. What do you do when you watch a really good movie or you find a really good restaurant, or you find a really good deal or sale on something, you, you tell somebody, right? Like we saw, or my family saw Crudes, and they came home like, you have to see Crudes too. Crudes too. It's so funny. It's so real. There's a kid that has a window, and it's like a TV. Anyway, see Crudes too. It's great. But, but that's, that's what we do, right? When we find something we love, we tell people about it. We tell those close to us. Now, how about if you have found life in Jesus, greater than any movie or restaurant, greater than anything else is that we have found eternal life and abundant life in Christ here and now. And that abundant life, again, we clarify this all the time, doesn't mean health, wealth, prosperity, everything's good. It means God walks through this life with you and gives you peace, joy, love, all those things in the midst. That's really the abundant life. We found this, and then our primary mission as the church is to share that. Our prime, and we have our mission on the wall over here, but our mission is to connect people to the abundant life only possible through an abiding relationship with Jesus. Simply our way of restating the Great Commission. Jesus gave this command. This isn't like Derek. This is Jesus saying, go make disciples. Okay, you found life in me. What do we do next? Tell somebody about it. It's called evangelism. If this is really our primary mission, and now let's not escape, once people are, are saved, then the goal is that we grow to be like Jesus. You know, that Jesus, God works in our lives, we get rid of sin in our lives, we grow more like him, we grow in that abundant life. Uh, it's not just salvation and then we're done. But if one of our main jobs, responsibilities is to share that, why is it so dang awkward? Uh, right? When I was in college, uh, I went to Biola University in Southern California, and we had a ministry, kind of like Mackenzie is doing, we had a ministry that we were required to be in each semester, and it was great. But for one semester, maybe two, I was on the evangelism team. And what we would do is we would go to a populated place like the Santa Monica Pier, and then strike up conversations with strangers, and then fit in there, so where are you going to go when you die? It was so awkward. I hated it. Um, it was good for me, but I hated it. And there was aspects of it I don't think were awesome. We were doing it through a college. If you're doing it through a church with a plan that people respond, then you bring them into fellowship and you decide, then that's good. Us, it was kind of like drop the Jesus bomb and then walk away like, yeah, you know. Um, it was really awkward. And so I kind of grew to, to dislike even the word evangelism, you know, or, or as uh, I read about, you know, churches and church planting and those things, you know, some talk about when you plant a church, go door to door and just knock and talk to everybody on the street, everybody, you know, I'm like, I don't want to do that. that. That's just so awkward. Or when we think of evangelism, we might think of the good old Billy Graham crusades. 
Or now it would be a Franklin Graham crusade or, or one of these other things where you get this, this big personality up there that shares the gospel and, and you bring your unbelieving friends and they hear the gospel in a, in a magical way um, and then they respond and, and how awesome is that? And then we think evangelism is like this super charismatic, special person that does it. And those things are good. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have been saved through those types of evangelism crusades or evangelists traveling around. Those are not bad things. But if those are the two main ways we do evangelism, a crusade or like street evangelism, we're really missing out. Because God's plan is actually to use normal people, you, (laughs) me, to do evangelism. And it's not supposed to be as awkward and weird as we kind of make it out to be. And so we need to, I think, change our idea of evangelism as this stranger-to-stranger street evangelism thing or this crusade thing and go, how can we actually do this evangelism? That's the question we're asking. This is in your notes. But what does evangelism look like for us normal people who love Jesus and desire to see others find eternal life in him? What does it look like? You know, we're in Acts, so turn to Acts, if you would, Acts chapter 16. But one of the themes that Luke, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's also the author of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And one of his kind of uh, hidden themes that I think is in here is that the gospel is moving. But the book of Acts is all about the gospel moving. It's all about the building of the church. It's all about Christians spreading their faith, and and it's just going. Um, And it ends with a to-be-continued. Right, And we're we're writing the sequel to that, or the sequel to the sequel, whatever. It's continuing. But one of the themes is that the gospel moves through normal people. The first martyr was not an apostle. It was Stephen, a normal dude living faithfully in his church, took a serve opportunity when he had the chance, then had an opportunity to share his faith, and they killed him for it. Philip, normal guy in the same group with Stephen, ended up being the first one to take the gospel up north to Samaria. Uh, We uh, we see the church in Antioch that sends out Paul uh, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. journey. Who planted the church in Antioch? We have no idea. They're unnamed. Later, Paul is going to be writing the book of Romans to the church in Rome. Well, who planted the church in Rome? I don't know. We have no idea. I mean, all these churches form and spread, and they're unnamed people that took them. Now, we hone in in Acts on a few people. You see Peter, some of the apostles, and Paul, and it shows us the gospel moving, but for the most part, it moves through normal people like you and like me. And so today, we're going to see a story, and this is the second missionary journey. Paul and and his crew now go to a new place called Philippi, and we're going to see two, maybe three conversions in very different ways. They're going to do evangelism very differently to reach two very different kinds of people, and we can learn a lot from this. So look at uh, Acts 16. Now, I want to start real quick in verses 6 through 8, just to remind us, because one of the problems we often have when it comes to evangelism or sharing our faith is we think it's up to us. We think that we need to be clever or have all the answers or have our life together perfectly before we share the faith. If, if that's the case, we'll never share our faith. Uh, and so we, we take way too much responsibility on ourselves or we're too scared of it so we don't do it at all. But here it, it begins in verses 6 through 8. We see God leading, uh, Acts 16, 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So you see, they kind of had this, we're going to go to Asia, 
And, and God says, no, I, I don't have that for you right now. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So now they're, they're like, we'll, we'll go over here. And God's like, nah, I don't have that for you either. So passing through Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging them, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you see this, God is leading. And I think it's helpful, it doesn't tell us how he led. You know, we see the, the vision Paul gets of this guy from Macedonia, but we don't see how he stopped them from going to the other places. But God was moving. Same with us. You know, God hasn't changed. He is still moving and directing and putting people in our path. Now look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. I'm sure you know where all these places are. And, for, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So God directs them to Philippi. Now, you know, real quick, I want to point this out. A lot of times we think of evangelism or missions work and we read through Acts and we think that's like foreign missions, like sending somebody to Africa or Russia or South America. I would say what they're doing is a lot more similar to evangelism in our local area or, or, or church planting because all these places they're going speak Greek. They, they're all speaking the same language. They don't have to go and learn a new language. They have the same language. They're all Roman areas in general. So they all have a similar culture. So we look at this and go, oh, that's way out there. No, that's actually pretty similar, I think, to us, even right here where we live. And the population in that area wasn't huge. So it's more similar to us going to the ranchos and then to Dayton and then, like I say, to California. You know, there's, we have the same language, so we have a lot more in common with them than we think. Now let's look how Paul begins, verse 13. Where does he begin his missions work? And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Where does Paul begin? Paul begins his evangelism with spiritually interested people. This is where Paul always starts. He either goes to a synagogue, because those were Jewish people worshiping God, or here they find out, oh, there's a place of prayer. People go on the Sabbath day. So these are Jew-like people. These aren't Jews, but they're, they're worshiping the God of the Jews, looks like. And so he goes to that place. He begins with spiritually interested people. That's a really good place to start. Why? They're assuming God is already at work. They're ass assuming there's some hearts. You know, God sent them to Philippi. Assuming there's some people there that God already has preordained, planned for us to meet. Why did God keep them from going to these other places but to go here? Maybe just for one person. Maybe. God had a plan, and they kind of had that idea. So let's go to these spiritually interested people. And who do we see first? It's Lydia. Not this Lydia, not my daughter, but she's named after this person. Did you know that? Yeah, you're named after her. Let's, let's see. <laughs> Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, 
who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here's the first woman, Lydia, the first convert in Philippi. Who is she? Well, she's an entrepreneur, wealthy. Uh, The early church, you know, Paul is not going to be in Philippi long. He's going to move on, and a church starts, and they meet in her house. So she's kind of a leader-type person. She's a ringleader. She's connected. And here, she is a, a, a worshiper of God. She has a heart already for God. She's already praying. And why did she believe? Because Paul shared something creative? Because Paul was really eloquent? No, she believed because the Lord opened her heart. That's why. All Paul did was show up and tell the truth. That's it. And the Lord opened her heart. Now, let me challenge this. Sometimes we think, well, if people just believe in God, that's enough. You know, people, they're they're spiritually open. They believe there's a God. They're good people. You know, that's enough. If that was enough, God would not have sent Paul to Lydia. Lydia was already a good person. She was praying to God, but she needed the details about Jesus because Jesus is the only way to salvation. People can be spiritually interested, but they need the details that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And how can you be saved? Believe. That's it. We're going to say it. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Place your faith in him as Lord. She needed that, those details. Why did God not just appear to her? Well, that's not how God typically works. God did appear to Paul on the road. We read that story. But most of the time, 99.999% of the time, God works through his people, not around them. And we hear those stories around the world today, too. Somebody's spiritually interested, and they'll get a dream and say, I'm going to send somebody to your house, answer the door. And the next day, ding dong, and they open the door, and here's somebody, you know, a friend or whatever, a Christian sharing their faith. God works through his people, not around them. My point is maybe there's somebody around you spiritually interested, and you're the Paul. Maybe you've got Lydia's all around you just waiting for somebody to speak up, somebody to share. People respond to the gospel because God works in them, not because of our quality of presentation. This is really helpful because it frees us up. Because then when we are honest and we share our faith in a loving way, I'm not talking Bible thumper way, you're going to hell, you know, that's part of the message. But you can say that in a loving way, you're going to hell if you don't. Uh, (laughs) Maybe not, but there's a loving way to, to share it. But we do share it and invite them into a relationship with God. But it's God at work, which frees us up to fail and be totally okay with it. Because God's doing the work and God might send somebody else. And they might fail too. And then God might send somebody else. And the seventh person, they respond. Who knows? That's not up to us. God is the one who opens the heart. God is the one who changes. Now, again, focusing on spiritually interested people. I I read this. I don't remember where, but kind of the idea that, that people are apples on an apple tree. And you've got some of those green apples, not quite ripe yet. And then you've got some of those really ripe ones ready to pick. Well, where do we start if you go to an apple tree? We had an apple tree. Where do you start? You grab the ripe ones. You wait for the the green ones to ripen. Some people are like that. 
You know, there may be somebody in your life, and, and you start to talk to them about your faith or about Jesus, see if they're spiritually interested, and they're not really. Well, they might be a green apple. They might be a crab apple. And, and you just need to wait. And you just need to wait. That's okay. It's not up to you to turn them into a red apple. You can pray for them. You can show, but just wait. But how about those red apples? Stop looking over the red apples at the green ones and, and pick those. Who, who is around you already who's spiritually interested? How do you find out? Well, you begin a conversation. You just be honest with who you are. And I'm not talking like a weird Bible thumper person uh, of everything you say is spiritual or whatever, but just be honest. You know, uh, we had somebody come the other day and buy a vehicle that somebody in our family crashed. And uh, when they came to the house, they're like, wow, this is a great area. And my, my response was simply, we're very blessed. You know, I didn't talk about it, but that's a weird word to use. But that's what we are. We're not lucky. We're, we're blessed. And so even just, you know, why are you here? Well, God let us here. What? That's a weird thing to say. But just the way you talk, people might perk up and go, hmm. And when you have a chance to, to share your faith, they, they might respond. These people will probably respond to an invite to church. They might not, but they might, they might respond to an invite to group. All you have to do is initiate. And again, if they're not interested, it's not up to you to make them interested, but they might be. And they're just waiting for somebody to speak up and to share. Spiritually interested people should be engaged with scripture and spiritual conversations. You know, these may be uh, people who grew up in the church but then wandered away. They were wounded by church. They were turned off. Maybe these are priesters. They come to church Christmas and Easter. Um, you know what I mean? They're, they're kind of on the fringes, you know, or they just, they're agnostic. I think there's a God, but that's who these people might be. But they're interested. Uh, the North American Mission Board recently did a study that showed 63% of people would say yes to an invite to church from a friend or family member. 63% would say yes, and if they say no, no big deal. But they might say yes. And let me tell you this, this is on my mind when I teach. I try and teach at a level that everybody can understand. And that makes you uncomfortable. So if you bring somebody, then you can go and hopefully have a conversation about that weird guy up front, the things that he said. Because I try not to be above and Greek and whatever, but this is real. This changes our lives, and hopefully people hear it, and then you get to go have the conversation and go a little bit deeper and explain the things that I got wrong um, or that was confusing. And so bring them to church. Uh, maybe they're not ready for that. That's okay, too. You get together. Spend some time in Scripture. If they're interested, hey, let's read the book of Mark together and talk about it. Don't read the book of Leviticus together. Start, you, you know, I mean... Start there, or maybe it's just a couple scriptures you have memorized and say, hey, look up these four scriptures and let's get together and talk about it. And then you ask and interact with the word. I used to think there was a, a magic curriculum, you know, or a book, just the perfect thing. There's not. And that gives us a lot of good news. What I've seen is what works with these spiritually interested people is get something, any kind of book, anything, and then start having conversations about scripture and life together. And then God will work. Because again, He's the one doing the work. It's not up to us finding the right book, the right curriculum, having the right words. We are so free to just be available and let God work. So that's the first one, Lydia, spiritually interested people. Now we see the second character that some would say is a convert, but we don't know for sure. Look at verse 16. 
as we were going to the place of prayer, so remember this is day after day, he's now staying at Lydia's house, him and his others, Luke is with them, Timothy is with them, um, and so they're there, and they're going now to this, house of, this place of prayer frequently on their way. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, this is a demon, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she knew things about people. Demons can do this. You know, demons are, are spiritual beings, they can, and they can, see, they can watch your life, and then they can tell somebody else, hey, here's some things about that person. Then they come, and they learn some things. So this is a, a real thing. And so uh, she is fortune-telling. Sorry, I lost my place. Where are we? Verse 17. <laughs> she followed Paul and us. Remember, this is Luke writing. He's part of the group. Crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Demons did this. They, they did it with Jesus too. You know, they would scream, oh, this is the Son of God. What? They knew these things, but why would they not really want somebody like this giving them accolades? We don't know her, what's behind it, but she is not a reputable source. You know, you don't want other people hearing from her. And so Paul is annoyed. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I think this is kind of cool. Paul's response. He didn't turn in great love and compassion. He was annoyed. <laughs> and he turned in his, come out of her. And in the name of Jesus, the spirit had to obey. Was this girl converted? I don't, we don't know. It doesn't say, I would think, you know, as we get to know what we know about Lydia, I would think Lydia who had a, a, a house in Philippi, she lived there. I think she probably would have bought this slave girl. Or who knows? Uh, but maybe brought in. That's kind of what I would picture. We don't know what happened to this girl. But we do know that it stirs something up because now the owners of this slave girl, their wallet is impacted. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order... He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All they did was cast out a demon. They were going to the place of prayer. Religious people were getting saved. No big deal. But now they're starting to impact the wallets of the people that live there. And what happens? They're arrested, stripped naked, beaten with rods, and then put in the stocks in the inner prison. This is not like a little persecution. They were beaten. So now they're naked in the stocks. And different people would say different things about what these stocks were. All we know is their legs were stuck in these stocks. It was very uncomfortable. Maybe in a seated position, you know, where they couldn't stand up and their knees were squished. Some would say they're actually hanging from the ceiling. Whatever it was, they're naked and cold and uncomfortable. But through this, through their suffering, we're going to see the jailer saved. And this is helpful to us. We're going to see somebody saved that's not like Lydia at all. And here's how. This is in your notes. God's people must be ready and willing to suffer well. 
and keep this in mind as we watch how they suffer. Now, before we go on, though, who is this jailer? This jailer is a Roman soldier. This was a position given to probably a retired soldier, someone who served well. It's a high-paying position, a little bit safer. He, he maybe did the beatings or at least oversaw them or at the least was ambivalent toward it. They were beaten. He's the one that put him in there. He is a, a man of the culture. He is a man of the world, a Roman soldier. He is just like all these others that were against him. Okay, I, I'm going to nerd out a little bit. Um, who here knows the TV show Star Trek Next Generation and has watched it? I, I'm just curious. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> all right, all you cool people. Um, it's a fun show. Well, one of the enemies they encounter in their space exploration is called the Borg. And the Borg are, are these uh, half-cyborg, right? But they're, they're the Borg. And so they'll capture people or other people-like things um, and implant machines on them. And the whole thing is that they become like a hive mind and they become one thing. And their whole thing is you will be assimilated. Uh, resistance is futile. I mean, that's kind of their thing. And so they capture cultures and assimilate them. And isn't that kind of what our culture wants to do? It wants to grab us and assimilate us, take out the pieces of us that might be godly and just fit, and, and we all then look the same. Isn't that just the big push right now? We all have to be for abortion. We all have to say there is no gender, whatever you want. Uh, sex is up to the person. I mean, our worldly mindset. Do what makes you happy. Uh, if there's a heaven, you get there by your goods out, outweighing your bad, whatever. And we're supposed to fit into this. And resistance is futile. Well, this jailer, he's a Borg. He's already assimilated, right? I mean, he's in that. He was born a Borg. And he is in there. And so how do you save somebody like that? He would never go to the place of prayer. If he had life trouble, he wouldn't pop into the synagogue or the church down the road. He wouldn't go there. We have a lot of these people around us too. They will not come here when they're in need. They will not come to you and ask for help, probably. These are worldly spiritually ambivalent, spiritually uninterested? How do we reach these people? It has to be different. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What is their response to suffering? They're naked, they're beaten, they're cold, they're humiliated, and they're singing praise. I'll bet you they're not singing, uh, oh, what's that song? Nobody knows the trouble. I'll be on the choir. The trouble I've seen, nobody knows my sorrow. I don't think it's that. It's probably more like these songs we were singing. Praise songs. You know, the doxology. Or my amazing grace, my chains are gone. I think it's that one in other versions. Yeah, but they're singing praises. How do you respond when you suffer? Do you want everybody to know that you're suffering Oh, I'm a victim. Oh, please feel sorry for me. Oh, woe is me. And if you don't give me the attention I want for my suffering, I'll go tell somebody else. Or is it joy in the midst of suffering? We see Peter earlier in chapter 5, Peter and other apostles beaten, arrested, put in jail, and then let go. And they leave rejoicing that they were willing to suffer for the name of Christ. This is the standard spirit-filled response to suffering. Did you know that? The standard... Spirit-filled response to suffering, is God, if God is in control of your life, is joy. Whoa. 
Go to group. We'll talk about it more this week. But that is the response. How do we suffer? How do we respond when we're treated unfairly? I was cheated many years ago out of about 10 grand from somebody I did a job for, a Christian. And I found myself praying. I, know, I remember where I was driving. I was praying a prayer that's, that uh, in, in the Psalms, David prayed, and this isn't a standard for us to pray. God, break their teeth. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I prayed that. And, and God kind of like spoke to me of, yeah, how about I give you what you deserve? I'm like, Never mind. I take it back. Bless him. Yeah, yeah, and it, he changed my prayer because God really said, if you get what you deserve, things aren't going to go well for you, right? What, what people need is grace. I was no better than, than this other guy. And so how do we suffer? How do we, we go through being treated unfairly? Can we love the person? Let me tell you, before we look a little further, I believe there's two greatest faith tests in our lives. The first is money. Our heart and our wallet are connected by a string. So uh, where do you spend your money? That's going to reveal your heart. Do you give generously, sacrificially? Where do you waste your money? That's a test. The second one is how do you suffer? Those two are the greatest tests of your faith. If when you suffer, your knee jerk is I go to Jesus, he fills me with joy and hope, doesn't make it easy. Don't, don't hey, I love suffering. But there's, there's joy in the midst of suffering. Those are the two greatest tests. And we can be ready for it. John 16, This is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Why are we so surprised when we suffer? Scripture is very clear. You're going to suffer. And when you do, it may be God's greatest tool to use you. Why do we complain today about our prayer from last week. Last week, God, please use me for your glory. This week, suffering, God, why do you hate me so much? Maybe in our suffering, we can look around, right? The prisoners were listening. He points that out. Maybe when you're in the waiting room at the hospital, while somebody's undergoing surgery or whatever, there's other people waiting in that waiting room. Maybe you're there to reach one of them, just to ask how they're doing, maybe to pray with them. I know people in this room that have done exactly that. While they've got somebody going through cancer treatment, that person over there, they have a kid also going through cancer treatment. And we can show up in those ways. Cling tightly to Jesus during suffering and let the Holy Spirit fill you with joy. How can you have joy in the midst of suffering? One thing, I would say primarily, get your eyes off yourself. Look to God, look around. Look, look to God, look others. I, I had a phone call with somebody just this past week. He said, man, I'm, I'm going to three Bible studies a week and church on Sunday, but I feel so, so empty and bleh. I said, well, why do you need three Bible studies a week? It sounds to me like you're just really looking in the mirror a lot. How about you quit two of those and go join a big brother, big sister program or, or something? Go start, if you have all this time to go to Bible study, how about you start pouring your life out to somebody else and make their life better? That's how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. Cling tightly to Jesus and let him use you. Look around a little bit. Maybe you're there not because God hates you, but because he loves you. And he knows you can do it. And you can make it through and he will grow your faith and you might make a difference for others. So now let's look real quick what happens to this jailer, verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. To reach the skeptic or the uninterested, be prepared to show amazing grace. What got through to this guy? Grace. If his prisoners escaped, he would have to die in their place. So he drew the sword. He's going to take the honorable way out. We think this is a movie thing. This is, he was going to fall on his sword. Paul, Silas could have left, but they didn't. Why not? I don't know. Maybe they just had an idea. God wants to do something. There's all these prisoners around us. I don't know if they were thinking about the jailer. Or maybe they just had this sense, the doors are open. When, when the doors open for Peter, he left. So there's not kind of a standard response here. They stayed. They showed him amazing grace, and he was saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe. They didn't say go through a class or all this stuff. They said believe. And then he was baptized immediately. He responded to amazing grace. How do we respond to those who treat us unfairly? How do we respond when we're suffering? Maybe there's people around us that need grace. Now, it's interesting uh, these three saved. Why, or two saved, maybe three. Why these? They're very different. And I think Luke has a theme here, too. There is no type of person that can be saved. All types of people can be saved. There was a prayer, a Jewish prayer in this time that Paul would have known well that said, oh, God, thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. This is something Jewish men would pray. Who's saved? A woman, a Gentile, and maybe a slave. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom. All are welcome. All can be saved, no matter how. I like what Paul was saying and the songs we were singing. You can't out God's grace. There is no type. Three very different people are saved by God's grace. Now, it ends with them being taken out. So they're, they're in the house. Let's finish this real quick. Um, verse 35. But when it was day... The magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to him, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into the prison. And do they now want to throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They probably could have avoided this suffering altogether. If at the beginning they said, BT dubs, that's by the way, and yeah, by the way, BT dubs were Roman citizens. Oh, shoot. Then there's a process we go through for this. They didn't. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they wanted to show how the non-Romans, they were going to suffer too. 
So what makes them different? They wanted to suffer and show people how to do it. Maybe it was because they knew God could use them during suffering, so they allowed themselves to go through it. What about us? When we suffer, we just want out. Do anything we can to avoid it rather than maybe this is God-ordained, and we stop and we look around a little bit. You know, as we move on to worship, I want us to respond in this way. I want you to consider one person. Who is one person in your life? They may be spiritually interested. They may be a green apple. Maybe you don't know. Think of one person that you know that needs Jesus. What if, and this is assuming God's already at work. This is assuming God has already placed you where he's placed you on purpose. What if there's one person in your life that God wants to save this year? One person. What if each of us has one person? And I think it would be silly to assume that's not the case. If all of us did that, you know how many baptisms we would have? Over 200. What would happen then? I don't think this is too much to ask of God. I don't think this is too little for God. I think God is waiting for faithful people to do this. Thank you for that, Paul, again. (laughs) He's waiting for us to surrender and say, who's that one? I'm going to do the really weird, awkward thing and talk about Jesus. And I'm, not gonna, and I'm gonna make it as l- less awkward as possible, but find those spiritually interested people or in suffering, show amazing grace to somebody. What might God do? He is so big. And as we move to worship, if you're in here and you have not experienced that grace yet, again, as Paul said, you have not, or as we sang, you cannot out God's grace. Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He loves you. He wants you to be part of his family. And he is the only way. Repent and turn to him and you can find life today, and you can get baptized on the 28th. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for these stories of uh, normal people, of messed up people, of sinful people. God, we can relate, unfortunately, maybe. uh, We can relate a lot to these people in the New Testament, these that are saved, these that stumble, these that struggle. And we thank you that you have died for us, Jesus, and you rose from the dead. We thank you that it's not up to us being good, that you don't look down and you pick the special ones or the smart ones, but rather you save because of your grace and your mercy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But now, God, because we have found this amazing life in you, I pray that you would show us that one person that you might want to reach through us, that we begin by praying for that person and then look for opportunities. Not to be weird and throw it in, but maybe that's what you want to do at times, but just to be open and bold. How might you use us for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we sing, just a reminder, uh, we have our prayer walls up here. They're chicken wire, this paper and pens there to write down. If a name comes to mind, I want you to do this. Who's your one person? If a name comes to mind, I want you to make your way up there, write that name down, roll it up, and stick it in there. You don't have to put your name on it. Roll it up and stick it in there, and we will pray with you for that person. Our prayer team gathers those, and prayer team, I'm giving you more work. Pray for these people by name, meaning it's not just up to you. We will pray for these people in your life and see what God does. And if you need Jesus or you want prayer, I'm going to be in the back. Come talk to me.